This is Channel Attitude. Your voice, your right, your freedom. This is Vince Russo's The Brand. Good afternoon, everybody. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Glass Onions. I am recording this for your listening pleasure on Friday, August 18th, 2023, man. This is the show where we talk about the weird, the wild, the macabre, and we got a great, great story today surrounding the death of perhaps the greatest guitarist of all time, Jimi Hendrix, who supposedly anyway died of a drug overdose by choking on his own vomit. But was that indeed the case? Or was Jimi Hendrix murdered by his manager? That's right, his manager. We're going to be talking about that today. And remember, man, if anybody asks you, you just tell them the walrus was Paul. Yes, indeedy. Now, you all know Jimi Hendrix, bro. Come on. Whether whether you're a music fan or not, whether you were born during his lifetime, we all know the legend of Jimi Hendrix. Many, many, many Cole Hendrix, the greatest guitar player of all time, of course, Jimi Hendrix died prematurely. And, um, you know, at the time, man, there were a lot of, especially musicians, man, in the 60s, early 70s, dying of overdoses. Uh, you had Jim Morrison, man. You had the great Janis Joplin. And, of course, you had Jimi Hendrix. And uh, many people wrote it off as just that. However, if you do your research, there is a heavy-duty conspiracy surrounding the death of the great Jimi Hendrix, man. I'm going to go over this today, man. I went to a website called loudersound.com, and this very intriguing story actually came out on September 18, 2018. So it's about seven years. No, I'm sorry, bro. It's about five years old. Um, but very, very, very um, accurate. Um, again, I don't think this story needs to be timely because Jimi Hendrix has been dead uh, for a very, very long time, man. I, I believe he died in February of 73. So let's take a look at this. How Jimi Hendrix died and the mystery surrounding his death by Harry Shapiro. Um, and this, uh, this, as I said, man, was published September 18, 2018 on loudersound.com. Was Jimi Hendrix murdered by a manager with debts to the mafia? Hendrix biographer Harry Shapiro talks to former roadie James Tappy Wright and reconsiders the mystery surrounding Jimmy's death. In February 1973, at the London apartment of Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey, 
The only other person there is James Tappy Wright, a softly spoken Giordi who has been working for Mike since the early 60s in Newcastle when Jeffrey was a club owner and manager of the animals. The night is wearing on. The ashtrays are filled and the bourbon is flowing. So it's 1973. We are in the apartment of Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey. There's only one other person there with Mike, bro. James Tappy Wright. He had been working for Mike since the early 60s. So just the two of them alone in a room. The night is wearing on. Mike owned the rights to Jimmy Plays Berkeley, a film on of Hendrix's May 1970 concert at the Berkeley Community Center in San Francisco. This album was widely regarded as among one of Jimmy's finest performances. After Jimmy died, Mike had the idea that he would tour the film supported by live acts in his stable, Cat Mother and Jimmy and Vela. Because so many people wanted to see Jimmy, never had the chance, watching him perform in a film coming out through a rock sound system in a cinema was the next best thing. And, uh, and according to Tappy, the tours of the UK and Europe were a huge success. So now they sit planning to take the idea to the States, and this leads to a general uh conversation about jimmy and his last days they're they're reminiscing bro they are reminiscing man mike and tappy about jimmy's last days i can remember this as if it were yesterday tappy said sitting in london's groucho club remembering the night that jeffrey apparently confessed to hendrix's murder As we are talking, Mike began to get very agitated and pale. I had no bloody choice. I had to do it. What are you talking about? You know exactly what I'm talking about. It was either that or I'd be broke or dead. So what is Mike Jeffrey talking about, man? The former manager of Jimi Hendrix. I have to say that it did confirm suspicions that I had, that a lot of people had. Only everybody was too scared to come forward and say anything. He was telling me. I didn't ask, and to be honest, I really didn't want to hear this. Mike gave away few details, and Tappy didn't press him further. All he said was he got a few of his friends. I don't know who they were. Just some villains that Mike knew from up north, and it was just booze down the windpipe like in that film, Get Carter. Barely a month later, Mike Jeffrey was dead. Wow, bro. So think about the timing of this. Jeffrey's is allegedly confessing the murder of Jimi Hendrix to his friend uh, Tappy, Tappy Wright. And a few days later, a month later, Mike Jeffries is dead. Flying back from Majorca, 
His Iberian Airways D9 flight was in a mid-air collision over France. There were no survivors. Mike was terrified of flying and was in the habit of making several reservations at once and then choosing his flight at the last minute to escape the fates. Wow, bro, how ironic is this now? But on March 5th, 1973, his luck ran out, and the full story behind his shocking confession died with him. Now, Tappy admits he sought no cooperative evidence then or since for Mike's story. Whoever else was involved was still out there, and they might have thought Mike told me everything. So I kept my mouth shut, although I did tell my close friend Ben Levine, who was part of Jimmy's management team in New York. He told me to disappear. Wow. Bro, why are you telling Tappy to disappear if there is nothing there? Interesting. But obviously, Tappy at this point is afraid of his life because Jeffrey supposedly anyway, admitted this murder and then dies in a airplane crash. Eventually, Tappy moved back up north and became a club owner. In the early 80s, rock manager Rod, Rod Weinberg formed the Animals and Tappy found himself back in the business. I asked Tappy to get involved because I needed somebody to keep Eric and Chas apart, says Rod. From their chats about the past came the idea for the book, which they started 10 years ago. So what motive could Mike Jeffrey possibly have for killing his major source of income and biggest rock star in the world? Well, if we are going to look at that, we have to flashback to September 1966. The Animals, you guys know the Animals, great brand, great band, bro. The great Eric Burden, bro. Great, great band. So flashback to September 66, the Animals had broken up over the summer. Bassist Chris Chandler was sick of the road and wanted to move into production. Keith Richards' girlfriend, Linda Keith, had persuaded Chaz to come see a young guitar player strut his stuff at the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village. Impressed with what he saw, Chaz tried to cut a deal for Jimi Hendrix even before he brought him back to the UK. Wow, bro, I just learned there. So Keith Richards' girlfriend, Linda Keith, did she discover Jimi Hendrix? Very interesting. Interesting. Keith tried to cut a deal for Jimi even before he was brought back to the UK. Nobody was interested. He had no more luck in the early days in London as he showcased his new fine around the club scene. So nobody's interested in Jimmy. Everyone was blown away. Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Pete Townsend were in collective shock, but still no deals. And you're talking about, bro, Clapton, Beck, and Townsend, some of the greatest guitarists in the world, are blown away by Jimi Hendrix, but nobody's interested in him. Chaz quickly released uh, realized he needed a business partner. He turned to the Animals manager, Mike Jeffrey. Nobody in the band had trusted Mike, believing he had devised an offshore tax scam simply as a way of stealing all their money. So 
Was Mike Jeffrey a shady character to begin with? But John Hillman, the lawyer who administrated the offshore company in the Bahamas, called uh, Yemeta, uh, is is adamant that the animals without Mike Jeffrey were nothing. Mike was a sharp operator with connections, and now Chaz was on the other side, Mike's side. Mike Jeffrey was born in London in March 1933. The son of two postal workers, Mike had an average school career, but he was quite sporty. He was called up for national service in 1951, then signed on as a full-time professional soldier. He was drafted into the intelligence corps, and from then on, not surprisingly, his army career became a bit murky. He later told tales of undercover work in Egypt during the Suez Crisis in 1956, counter-espionage work against the Russians, and general murder and mayhem in foreign parts. So now Mike Jeffrey's a little bit of a, a character, man. Some of these stories are reminding me of the great Francois from WWE. Some of this Austin Powers man of mystery routine may have been employed to impress and frighten the young musicians he later had under his wing. But his father, Frank, did say that Mike could speak fluent Russian, that much of his army career was spent in civvies, and that when he was at home, he rarely spoke about what he did. So something was going on in his military career. But probably his crowning achievement in the service of queen and country was to make serious money selling old newspapers to British soldiers stationed in Egypt. Troops aboard are always desperate for news from home. Mike found out that in Cairo, which was off limits to soldiers, newspapers were on sale that were only a few days old. Strictly against the rules, he commandeered a truck and began shipping pile of papers back to the base. He was caught, but cut his commanding officer a slice of the action and still had enough money to start up in Newcastle as a club owner. See, bro, they're, they're, they're in on everything, bro. Everybody's on the take, bro. But not before he earned himself a degree at Newcastle University. So no stranger to danger. Mike proved himself intelligent, charming, and street smart. Okay, bro. So he's not hes not an idiot. He finds ways to make money, whether illegal or not. And from, from a, what I'm reading here, uh, comes across as a little bit, little bit of a con man. But let's read on with this story. Very interesting. In October 66, Jimmy, Noel Redding, and Mitch Mitchell signed a production contract with Chaz and Mike, the animals. But on 1st December, Jimmy alone signed a four-year management contract with Mike. Not only were Noel and Mitch excluded, even Chaz's name didn't appear until sometime later. Right from the outset, Noel and Mitch were only regarded by Mike and Yamada as employees. And whatever Jimmy might have said to them verbally, this state of, ref- of affairs was reflected in the contracts. So Jimmy has a couple partners. They sign Jimi Hendrix 
but Mike did it, excluding his other partners. So yeah, bro, this dude's a shark, man. That's that's what that's what I'm telling you. This dude's a shark. So now Mike has a contract with Jimmy. For Mike, Jimmy was the star, and he wanted as few obstacles in the way of his investment as possible. Eventually, they signed to track records in the UK. But Mike's big coup was signing with Warner Brothers in January 1967. Aside from the recording contract itself, he negotiated a $20,000 promotion budget, unheard of for an unknown artist's debut album. And he wrangled an exclusion clause for any soundtrack recording, something Warner's would regret later. On top of that, Warner's agreed not to sign Jimmy directly, but instead to sign for for the services of Yameta, which contracted to supply the master recordings of Jimi Hendrix or the Jimi Hendrix experience to Warner's. And in doing so, Yameta retained exclusive and perpetual, perpetual ownership of all masters recording, of all masters recording, not even the Beatles or the Stones own their masters. So Mike works a deal with Warner Brothers where they record and he sends the recordings to Warner's, but he owns all the master recordings. You know, back then, bro, bro, this would never happen today. When an artist signs with a, uh, Recording company, they own everything. So you know, Mike's a Mike's a Mike's a smooth operator, bro. Smooth operator. So now he owns all the rights to Jimi Hendrix's music. So with the substantial backing of a major US label, a Jimi Hendrix rock machine begins to roll. Like Cream, the span the band spent more and more time in the States in search of the big bucks. The tours get long and the concert fees rose, especially when Mike arranged for self-promotion of the band. Instead of dealing with dozens of different promoters all over the states, they dealt with a handful and paid them a percentage to promote the brand. And he also wised up very early on to the earning power of merchandising. So more cash for the experienced coffers. That's that, That's smart, bro. He's he's the first one uh, on the merchandising bandwagon. But by mid-1968, cracks were appearing in the organization. Jimmy knew he had Chaz and Mike to thank for everything, but he was beginning to resent what he saw as Chaz's grip on his creativity. This came to a head during the recording of Electric Ladyland at the record plant in New York, where Jimmy was bringing in extra music musicians to move away from the trio format. Chaz also got cheesed off about the drugs, especially LSD, and the growing band of groupies and hangers-on that infested the recording sessions. Chaz decided to cut his ties as Jimmy's producer, and he went back to England, although for the time being, he retained his management interests. Jimmy, too, was getting tired of Mike's insistence on the needing for constant touring, and moreover, the audience expectation that he would smash his amps or set fire to the guitar and the general boredom of playing the same songs every night. As he said later, he was up. He was fed up playing the clown. 
So, bro, this is all Mike, bro. This is all Mike, his manager, you know, coming up uh, with with the gimmicks, bro. And, you know, let, let's be honest, man. At the end of the day, it was the gimmicks that got Jimi Hendrix over. Matters came to a head in the summer of 69. The band's performances became unpredictable depending on Jimmy's mood. Sometimes exhilarating and powerful, other times scrappy and ill-prepared with Jimmy, Noel, and Mitch hardly looking at each other. No, no, Noel, Noel left, Billy Cox was brought in, and Jimmy repaired to a rented house in Shokan, upstate New York, to consider the future. Although Mitch stayed on, Jimmy began talking about Sky Church music and gathered around him a whole group of new musicians of verifying quality who played a patchy performance at Woodstock in front of the 30,000 people left on the Monday morning after everybody had gone home. Then Jimmy went off the road, and Mike Jeffrey went nuts. Despite all the success, the cash was running out. Man, this 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 is starting to sound like, man, a little bit of uh, Elvis and the Colonel, man. Uh, you know, how Colonel Tom Parker, you know, controlled Elvis's career and constantly had Elvis out, you know, touring. You know, and that's how Elvis started getting addicted to drugs and and. Colonel Parker kept working them and working them and working them. That's what it sounds like is going on here between Mike Jeffrey and Jimmy. Although Mike had uh, had struck great recording deals, actually getting the money out of the record companies was the devil's own job. They were always months or even years in rears. So the real money was in touring, often thousands of dollars in suitcases and paper bags. But once Jimmy left the Woodstock stage on 18th of August, 1969, he turned his back on touring until April 25th, 1970. That's a, that's a long stretch, man. And the start of the Cry of Love tour. So the income was falling while the expenses were going off the radar. Jimmy had no concern for studio costs. He spent hours and hours jamming and experimenting. Electric Ladyland alone cost $60,000. The band always spent heavily limos, hotels, paying the bills for the damaged and the doomed and the, and the doomed who hung around Jimmy's neck and who he could never refuse. He loved fast cars, although he was as blind as a bat, and one weekend bought nine guitars. Mike was no stranger to spending either. As a character on the music scene, he was he he was always felt something of an outsider. With his perennial prescription dark glasses and long black coat, he cultivated an air of menace. But he desperately wanted to be accepted among the American rock management elite. Men like Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman. Party as a way of getting closer to Jimmy, partly as a way of getting closer to Jimmy, he took on more of the hippie look and dropped lots of acid. In the summer of 69, he brought an expensive house among the hip rock community in upstate New York and rented the house at Showcan for Jimmy. This is a long story, bro. <laughs> we might we might have to do a two-parter. But uh let's continue. It's getting interesting, bro. It's getting dicey. Getting a little dicey here, bro. Let's continue. 
Then there was this financial black hole that was Electric Lady Studios. Mike had great success as a club owner, both in the UK and Spain, and tried to persuade Jimmy to invest in a club in New York. Eventually, this evolved into the idea of building a state-of-the-art studio. Nice idea. Shame about the location. In his book, Tappy recalls that New York's 8th Street was right in the heart of Mafia territory. There were already four Italian clubs in the neighborhood, and the mob were not keen of having a rock star with Jimmy's reputation setting up shop in their midst and bringing a lot of unwanted attention in their area. Wow, bro. So there you have it, man. Jimmy's opening up a club right smack in the Italian territory or neighborhood. And there's probably a lot of funny business uh, stuff happening behind closed doors, deals going on within this Italian community. And now Jimi Hendrix has a club in the middle of it, and it's going to attract a lot of attention that perhaps the, uh, dare I say, mafioso may not want. Against that backdrop, there were endless problems getting the necessary building permits. And then the site was flooded after they discovered they were building right on top of an underground river. And as shrewd as Mike might have been, he could also be impulsive. When it came to equipping the studio, instead of trying to arrange installment plans for purchasing... Attorney Howard Kranz says Jeffrey would just buy the item outright, adding to the cash flow problems. So even though Mike secured a whopping loan from Warners, the original budget of 500000 soon became a distant memory. Mike took the very dangerous step of borrowing money from the mob. Bob Levine, who had worked for Sinatra, knew these guys and would act as the go-between. Tappy says he would drive up to these big houses with gates, just like you see in the movies. Bob would tell me to wait in the car, and then he would come out with a package. All right, bro. So Mike is now borrowing money from the mob. The Godfather and the Sopranos have embedded gangsters in our popular mythology, so it's easy to forget that the mafia are real and really do hurt people who cross them. Added to which, Mike had left some unfinished business in London. Electric Lady studio manager Jim Moran remembers Jeffrey telling him he owed someone $20,000. They sent the guy over to kill Mike if he didn't pay. That won his respect, and he paid up. And if that wasn't enough, he had the American Inland Revenue Service, IRS, on his tail. Jimmy never benefited from the Yemeta tax haven because he was a U.S. citizen. Only U.K. citizens could afford paying tax in this way. Nor could Mike legally bring in any money from the Bahamas without the IRS getting their chunk. So Bob Levine recalls Mike's assistants, Trixie Sullivan and Kathy Eberth, 
arriving in New York with woges of cash stuffed in bras and boots. The IRS was threatening to impound Electric Lady if Mike didn't start making some regular payments. So he was treading a very fine line financially and was perpetually in need of cash injections to keep the boat afloat. Forward planning was not his strong suit, says concert promoter Ron Terry. Mike planned from minute to minute. If he was broke, he reacted, and that put pressure on his artist. All right, bro, let's, let's leave it there and come back next week. And as we're seeing, man, Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey, is now in a terrible financial bind. He owes money to the IRS. He's got people after him in London where he had to pay out $20 million. I'm sorry, $20,000. And he's just borrowed money from the mafia. So we're going to pick up this story next week. And we're going to see how this all relates to the death of Jimi Hendrix. Was it a death or was it a murder? We will find out next week on part two of Glass Onions. I will see you all then, man. I can't wait to see what happens in this story, man. I'll see you next time.